Hey, this is Dan Wonderlich from Defining Grace, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. My guest today is Reverend Eric Huffman, lead pastor at The Story, a United Methodist church plant in Houston, Texas. Eric joins us today to talk about the importance of and tips on how to keep your preaching interesting. Well, my guest today is Reverend Eric Huffman. He's the lead pastor at The Story, a United Methodist church plant in Houston, Texas. Eric, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dan. It's good to be here, man. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we begin each of our podcasts by giving our guests a chance to share a little bit about themselves as well as their ministry and its context. So why don't you do that for us? Sure. Uh, I'm a fifth-generation Methodist preacher, and I did not expect in my youth to become a preacher like my dad and grandfather (laughs) and great-grandfather before me, but uh, it's an inevitable uh, calling. I think sometimes, and and so I'm from the sticks of East Texas, Northeast Texas, near the Oklahoma border. Grew up uh, in a tiny Methodist church there in my little hometown called Red Lick, Texas, 248 people. Wow. And had a, a childhood that uh, I think most kids today don't get to have. I mean, I got to roam around uh, on my own every summer day, I uh, would leave on my bike and come home whenever I wanted to. And, you know, as long as I was home by sundown, nobody worried. And uh, so there was a kind of freedom that I think uh, breeds creativity and uh, a real sense of wonder that I think probably shaped me early on. But uh, ended up going to Centenary College in Shreveport and then to St. Paul School of Theology up in uh, Kansas City, where my wife, Giovanna, and I uh, went to seminary together. And uh, we've been planting churches and co-pastoring since the day we met. That's great. And tell us a little bit about the demographics and style of the story there, since it is so new and in such a exciting city there in Texas. St. Luke's dreamed about starting a new congregation, and they didn't have any particular plans or vision for what it would be called or what the mission of it would be or who it would reach. Uh, they just kind of had a, a sense that that St. Luke's was no longer the place to go for people moving into the area necessarily. Uh, It was for some, but not for enough people. And so St. Luke's, uh, I think, wisely started to make plans and also even more wisely left the door open to what the thing could become um, without really micromanaging it or, or, you know, they they really left a lot of autonomy uh, on the table for us as we got started. So we were able to come in and say, uh, this is the mission field as we understand it. Um, it is incredibly young. It's uh, somewhat ethnically diverse and incredibly, um, I guess the word is it's the nuns, right? It's a spiritual but not religious crowd, sure. a highly uh, materialistic uh, crowd. And I mean that in the sense of uh, not so much going out and buying stuff, but in the sense that uh, this crowd lives and talks as though what we what we see in the world is, is what there is. And, you know, that's, uh, we should just live for the now. And that kind of a thing is the, was the prevailing winds of culture that I perceived in coming here and a church attendance or church membership or participation in a faith community was pretty much non-existent for the large majority of people. Um, I think a a misnomer is that Houston is a Bible belt town because of Osteen, Mm. whose church is, uh, his church is three blocks from us. Um, and <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. And, you know, it's the largest church in the country, I think. And 
And then there's Second Baptist, which uh, is in the top 10 largest churches in the country. But so people think of Houston and they think Bible Belt like they think of Dallas or Atlanta or wherever. And, and it's just not. Houston is what some sociologists call below the Bible Belt, kind of uh, on par with New Orleans. Um, mm. Highly secular city, very driven by money, success, image, and uh, hard work. And so it's, uh, it's an opportunity for someone who, like Gio and I, <clears throat> who we've always uh, made it our mission to make the gospel uh, exciting and compelling to people who wouldn't give normal church the time of day, probably. So um, this was, uh, it was like a ready-made, God-ordained kind of a situation for us to step into. Yeah, and that is obviously an exceptionally large challenge, and one of the ways that you have gone about it is through uh, focusing on making your preaching interesting. This is something that you have spoken about in the past, and so can you tell us a little bit about what you mean when you describe preaching as interesting? How do you understand it, and, and, and how would you describe interesting preaching? Yeah, interesting is not a very fun word. Um, <laughs> <laughs> usually when somebody says, well, that's interesting, it's, yeah. uh, it's not a good thing. And I wrestled with how I wanted to define what I'm aiming for when I preach. And interesting was the word I settled on, but I kicked around other words, you know, like uh, exciting or, you know, relevant is just a tired old word now. And, sure. uh, and uh, entertaining was a word I used for a while. And I still think preaching should be entertaining. I think we'll talk more about that in a bit. But the idea is preaching should speak to people, and that's obvious on the face of it, but it doesn't most of the time. Preaching speaks to uh, the church oftentimes. Uh, preaching is entirely irrelevant and boring to uh, the majority of people in our, in our contexts. And so I, that troubles me. It bothers me deeply. I, I know when I'm sitting in a church or a wedding or whatever, and, and I feel like I'm being held hostage by someone uh, <laughs> who's preaching or speaking, yeah. hasn't done their homework or hasn't worked on the craft. I get uh, something inside of me, something visceral gets angry. Um, and sure. it's part, of it, part of it is I'm just a spoiled, entitled brat. But the other part of it is I feel like we have, in terms of, if you want to call it a product or, you know, a pitch, we have the most exciting core material, the raw materials to work with from anyone. And so why, why are people surprised when they hear a sermon that doesn't put them to sleep? You know, that's, that's troubling to me in general, people's expectations when a preacher starts talking is that I'm going to be bored for a while and I've got to endure it. And I think if, uh, in general, I think if we worked a little harder and were a little more uh, honest with ourselves about the mission of preaching, I think we'd be more likely to, to keep people's attention in a way that opens the door for, uh, for Jesus to, to speak to people's hearts. Uh, in particular, uh, skeptical, non-religious, um, spiritual but non-religious people, people with questions who are getting answers to their questions from communicators whose theology I don't agree with, who may not even be theological at all, but they know how to communicate. And so um, rhetoric matters, um, persuasive tactics matter, uh, the topics you choose to speak on, it all matters. And if what we're doing as preachers is just 
you know, well, this is this week's passage and you all should respect it because it's this week's passage. And, you know, this, uh, it's just, it's a real drag. And I, when I, the, the big thing for me is just Jesus looking at the way he communicated his message. Uh, it was always enticing and challenging and fun even. Yeah, it's not like the nuns don't have questions or that they're unwilling to listen. It, it's that we need to be offering this as you call, as you rightly described it, the most exciting, engaging, important message they can hear. Uh, packaging it in such a way that it actually reaches them. Well, they're hearing it everywhere else. They're hearing the gospel narrative everywhere else in their lives. They just don't know it's the gospel. So, the, I mean, this, you know, Star Wars phenomenon is an obvious one. Uh, the Neo and the Matrix uh, is another one where the communication is just so profound and well done that the story is told, but people don't realize that it, it's a story hearkening back to Jesus and his gospel and his resurrection. And, and they're just uh, telling the story better than us. And so uh, that, to me, uh, is something we need to work on. And I think it's something we've been, as preachers, threatened by. And so our response has been, if, because we think deep down we can't do it as well as Hollywood or we can't do it as well as, uh, you know, whoever, uh, whatever new age guys out there or whatever preachers out there that we can't match up to, then we're going to say that preaching shouldn't be fun. Preaching right. should you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, I just think that's uh, insecurity talking more than wisdom. Yeah, we you talk some about boredom. That's obviously the mortal enemy to communication because it, it causes people to tune out. And and uh, and that is honestly a word I think of sometimes when I think of preaching. And that's part of why I started this podcast was to, to dig into conversations like this and find ways to make preaching uh, entertaining, engaging, interesting, relevant, whatever word you choose uh, to use. So where do you think the disconnect is between the greatest story, the most important story, and then what many people hear in, in churches on Sunday. Where do you think that disconnect comes from? You started down a little bit of a road of maybe insecurity and in, in how to communicate. Are there any other factors you see there? I think it goes back to seminary training um, and what uh, we're expecting of young preachers when, when they're cutting their teeth. I think we expect too much in terms of, you know, proper theology and, uh, exegesis of the text and not enough work in terms of um, what words you choose and why and how you put those words together and how you incorporate testimony and personal story and emotion. And, you know, I think there has been, um, by and large, in terms of preaching education at the seminary level, I think there's been a rejection of emotionalism or enthusiasm uh, there's kind of a paranoia about uh, about charismatic preachers mm. um, that aren't legitimate somehow because they excite people. And, you know, I, I just think we're I think we're making a big mistake if we think, you know, if we think that uh, that exciting preaching is, you know, by its very nature, anti good theology. Uh, I think at the seminary level, because we live in a communications age, I wish there was more of a concerted effort to teach people, new preachers, be they young or, or not so young, how to, how to communicate well. And I think we would have to probably call on secular resources to do that. But, you know, for me, it's as simple as, uh, as learning from people 
whether they're Christian or not, who are communicating extraordinarily well and and mimicking that. I think one thing I've had going for me, um, I, as many mistakes as I've made in ministry, is that I've been able to to mimic those doing it well. Mm. And you know, I think anything great uh, is copied from somewhere. Sure. And so you know, I think uh, I think finding your own voice is important, but. So you do that. It's all right to borrow somebody else's and and um, try your best to mimic those who are doing it well. Well, and maybe tied into some of what you're talking about, what we learn in our seminary education about preaching is to turn to the commentaries and the exegesis and all of this stuff, which is very important, and it lays the theological groundwork. But you talked, uh, when I saw you speak on this, about how uh, a lot of us pastors tend to be theology nerds and church geeks, and so we get excited about and interested in things that are maybe specific to us, uh, you know, things that we find really interesting that have a point that can be extracted and repackaged for other people, but instead we just present it in a way that's interesting to us. And so how, right. how have you tried to overcome this in your preaching, uh, and how do you try to stay connected to the interests of your community? Yeah, I think uh, pride is a big part of it. I, try, I used to, you know, I think seminary trains us to try and sound smart. Um, and, mm. you know, it's the whole, the, the difference between first Isaiah and second Isaiah, uh, you know, and like, you know, I hear preachers all the time, especially new preachers out of seminary, you know, go out of their way in a sermon to say, well, this letter from Paul is disputed. The authorship is disputed, da 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 da, da. And, you know, I, I think that's, uh, that's probably important material for an for a in-depth Bible study. But for a sermon, um, you know, I think it muddies the waters to the extent that a message is lost and, uh, you know, a story isn't told um, because everybody's questioning the legitimacy uh, uh, or the authenticity of this, you know, who wrote this, you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not saying that conversation's uh, unimportant. I, I just, I think for me, preaching is not about showing people how much I learned in seminary or, or how much I know that they don't know or anything like that. It's, uh, it's really speaking to the soul of a congregation. And that to me is more about breaking down some of the walls we built around that soul and, uh, and laughing at ourselves a little bit and, uh, telling stories that reinstill, you know, hope that God's not done with us. And so I think, uh, I think sometimes, uh, people that go to liberal seminaries come out with pet issues, you know, and they tend to preach to what I call the, the NPR crowd. And, yeah. Uh, you know, the NPR listenership is is great and worthy of uh, of the gospel uh, as, as much as anyone. And people that go to conservative seminaries and train in those ways uh, tend to tend to preach primarily to legalistic uh, crowds that, you know, have been studying memory verses their whole lives. And uh, and, you know, what what kills me is that 70 something percent of the population you know, if they were to visit these, either one of uh, those preachers' sermons, you know, liberal seminary guy or conservative seminary guy, they're going to feel lost because what possible meaning could this have for me if I'm just living my life with very little uh, knowledge of the Bible at all um, and, and, a, and an inherent mistrust in, in religion and the church in particular and um, preachers like you, you know, like, why should I even stop and listen? What, what does this have to do with my real life? today. You know, that's what I hear a lot from people is I came to church slightly believing in something, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, uh, and I, I've just never really sat and 
thought about, you know, uh, what I believe in, but I know something out there is true. And, and for me, the role of preaching is uh, helping folks in a practical way connect the dots. And, you know, eventually we'll get around to the difference in the voice between second Isaiah and third Isaiah or whatever. But first we got to, we got to deal with people where they're at. Yeah. And if we present that kind of information poorly too, we can make the Bible seem like this great mystery that the person who hasn't been to seminary will never be able to figure out because yeah. unless they have a really like detailed study Bible, they're looking at their Bible going, how am I supposed to know wh what's real and what's not and who wrote what and who didn't? And yeah, it's uh, you know, uh, Jesus, if uh, Jesus was uh, incredibly profound in his teaching and used uh, a lot of you know, rhetorical tools we know like hyperbole and and other uh other tools that extremely trained well-trained rhetoricians use but he always always simplified it you know he used like 300 everyday uh images or metaphors mm. for everyday things that everyday people were doing and seeing and touching with their own hands you know, he wasn't, he wasn't sort of this uh, intellectual elite. He could have been, but he wasn't. And, uh, and he connected with people on their level. Yeah. Well, when I saw you present on this topic this last spring, uh, one of the things that made me cheer on the inside was when you talked about the label performance. And you have a little bit of, of a beef with the label of performance when it's applied to preaching or really any uh, aspect of the church. So can you talk a little bit about uh, y your understanding of what people actually mean when they call a sermon a performance? Yeah, man. Uh, so when you're a preacher, you'll get this from both sides, right? So on the on the left side, um, people call performance, uh, you know, preaching performance whenever, whenever there's, uh, you know, you raise your voice or your face gets red or you're passionate and people are moved, you know, they call that performance and they say you're manipulating or they, you know, that's the implication is that you're manipulating people with emotion and emotionalism. And people on the right will say, uh, you know, sometimes people on the right, I've gotten this more from people on the right will say, well, you write your sermon like a manuscript? Like, where is the Holy Spirit mm. in that? Isn't that just like a script? And so, you know, they're saying the same. They're saying it's a performance, too. And they're, uh, you know, their, their claim is, is the same, that it's not authentic. Uh, and, you know, I have a real problem with both sides of that because, first of all, just historically speaking, um, even going back to, to Jesus, I tend to think of him... You know, pretty much figuring out what he's going to say. Some of these stories that are really intricate in detail. I don't, I don't sense that he's making it up as he goes along. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like it was, uh, if you want to use the word, rehearsed, um, and it comes across that way anyway. Um, and then just our, you know, historical preachers that everyone, people on the left and right, say they look up to. Why do we have volumes and volumes of their sermons written in? Uh, you know, in books, I, I, I doubt it's because someone was there, you know, recording them or transcribing what they were, what they were saying, as they said it, no, they planned it. They wanted to do something to people and you can call it manipulation if you want, but manipulation can be good or bad. Sure. And to me, when we preach, we're absolutely trying to do something to a person uh, and persuade them in some way. And my view and what, what really 
gets me up in the morning is that I think there's a lot at stake here. I think there, the stakes are higher in the half hour of a sermon than maybe any other time during the week in terms of the life of the church, mm. because you've got everyone's attention and everyone's dealing with their own real life issues and families are falling apart and souls are in jeopardy. And if you believe all that to be true, then, you know, on the one hand, getting up and, and just winging it or, you know, trusting the spirit, I'm doing air quotes right. in, my, <laughs> in my office right now. Uh, that to me is irresponsible. Uh, it works sometimes, but I think, I think it, the spirit works as well and better typically through preparation and, and disciplined uh, approach. But on the other hand, if you get up and you just, you're afraid of being funny you're afraid of being entertaining. You're afraid of, you know, uh, crying or, or you know, seeming like you're manipulating folks. That that too is just putting such uh, you know, fisticuffs on the on the spirit's movement in the room. And so, yeah, I believe uh, preaching is good. Preaching is performance. I think worship is performance, and I don't think we should shy away from that. I think it goes way back biblically to the times of Moses uh, and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where God's prescribing what a worship service should look like among the people. He didn't say come together for an hour on Sunday or Saturday and be bored for an hour together and endure a scripture reading and endure a talk from some guy who doesn't know what it's like, you know, to live how you live and is irrelevant. He says, you know, put on these clothes and they're like the loudest, brightest clothes. He tells <laughs> yeah. You know, and he's like, say these words and do this dance and light these, you know, fires and, uh, you know, smear this blood. And it's just like all these crazy visuals and, and uh, you know, songs and dances. And it, it was scripted. It was compelling. It was like nothing else in everyday life. It was different. And it was entertaining. And I, I just, I, I can't... Um, I can't excuse that away. I think some people do for different reasons. And my fear is that one of those reasons is we're just afraid to try and not be good at it. Mm. Um, and I think uh, that's a real fear because if you do try and you're not good at it, then yeah, it can be worse than not trying at all in terms of having a new approach to worship and preaching. But you can, you can pursue uh, training advice and resources from other people uh, who are doing it well, secular and, and religious. I mean, I don't just look to churches that are pulling off. In fact, I rarely look at what churches are doing. Like entertaining churches, to me, uh, are not doing the kind of uh, stuff that I would want to do to reach my non-religious audience. Hmm. So I look more to stand-up comedians and TV shows and, and secular places to see what, what, what's working. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, humor a little bit earlier as well, and now you bring up stand-up comedians. Uh, we can do a whole episode on humor and preaching, but do you have any quick thoughts on on the interplay between humor and preaching and, and maybe any tips for folks who are nervous about using humor in their preaching? Yeah, I understand why you'd be nervous because it's another deal where if you try and fail, it can seem worse than it is. But I would say if you're not the funny guy or girl, and you're just not naturally that person. Try being funny uh, in ways that uh, own that. Um, so there's dry humor, mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, uh, self-deprecating humor that uh, you don't want to be weird and pathetic about it where, you know, you know, everybody feels sorry for you. But, but what, what laughter does is it just opens the door, man, um, for the rest of the communication. And I, I used to open sermons with a joke. And that is good. It's a good way to start sometimes. Um, you know, Joel Osteen does every week, like, the worst joke that he <laughs> yeah. on the internet. Yeah. It's not even like a real-life, you know, him being funny. It's just something he found on cleanjokes.com or something. And, um, you know, some people laugh. Some people roll their eyes. And instead of laughing with him, they laugh at him. But either way, he's a human being in, in their eyes and uh, vulnerable and likable, and they're more ready to listen to him. So say what you want about old Joel, um, but something's working there in terms of his communication style and skills. And so we should pay attention. Um, And so um, I think what I've learned over time is uh, if you start with a joke or something and then you... And then you get through, uh, you know, the middle of the sermon and, and it's dark and painful and you don't just want, you know, the, the humorous side of you to be, uh, to be at the opening and then you get real. Like, um, I think it's good to, when, when a topic is hard to digest for people, it's good to intersperse some uh, lightheartedness uh, throughout a, a sermon just to keep people engaged, yeah. especially men. And I, one of my sub goals, it's not my main goal, but one of my goals in preaching is preaching to men better. And, uh, men just, they have to feel a personal connection and relatability with the speaker. And that can happen with a male speaker or a female speaker, as long as they're not inauthentic. And I think men have a greater, uh, sense and a more, uh, a faster trigger finger in terms of turning off someone who appears or sounds inauthentic, like they're just going through the motions. Mm. Well, we have a set of questions that we like to ask all of our guests. And the first one, you can choose to answer one or both sides of this. Uh, What is one of your favorite and or most challenging preaching experiences? I'll say favorite and most challenging recently has been, I did two sermon series a year, a little over a year ago. One was about the book of Leviticus. And the point of doing that, and this was right when we had started the story, um, so this was like our second or third sermon series, and this was our really our first sermon series that was strictly about like a book of the Bible. Yeah. And so I wanted to help break down some of the walls people have built about the Bible, and particularly about Leviticus, because people are so dismissive of Leviticus. I mean, if you look on Reddit or social media sites, um, whenever someone's insulting the Bible or dismissing the Bible— um, they always go to Leviticus, and most of the time they have no idea what they're talking about because right. they've never actually read Leviticus, or you know they don't know the backstory. And so I figured if I can make Leviticus relatable to my non-religious crowd, then the rest of the Bible will be kind of a breeze. And <laughs> so yeah, we started there, and um, you know there's such good stuff in Leviticus just on the surface without even, you know, digging deep into the historical context. Uh, if you can't preach, you know, the day of atonement, uh, in a, 
gospel oriented way, then I, I don't know what to do for you. Like if you can't preach <laughs> Jubilee, you know, I yeah. mean, these are, these are just built in home runs, but it also gave me an opportunity to talk about historical context and where all these, you know, seemingly crazy laws and rules came from and how these people were trying to be different and how God was calling them to be holy and, uh, and helping them to survive. And so it was really a, a watershed moment for a lot of people who have carried their paranoia about the Bible around with them. I mean, one of the reasons we called this, this church the story is to recapture and reimagine um, the Bible as a, as a good story. And so um, things like people's perceptions of Leviticus can be a real hindrance to that. And so that was a breakthrough moment. It was challenging. We have significant numbers of people here at the story uh, who are, you know, divorced. And Leviticus says quite a bit about that. Uh, LGBT, Leviticus has some passages seemingly about that. And um, so digging through that stuff with, you know, I've got, just to give you an example, I think if I took a survey of who everybody in my church voted for yesterday uh, for the president, uh, you know, I, election, I think it would have been 40, 40, 20, uh, you know, Clinton, Trump, and a third party. Yeah. So it's a, it's an extremely diverse politically congregation. And so managing those uh, difficulties can be a challenge. Uh, another sermon series I did was about dating. And our congregation is mostly single or newly single in terms of, you know, single again uh, after a divorce. Um, but most of our congregation is uh, 20, teens, 20s, and early 30s, uh, not yet married, and had never heard anything about the Bible and dating other than just don't have sex before marriage. That was, right. pretty, that was pretty much all anybody had ever heard about what God wants from people who are single and dating. So that was, uh, you know, another challenging series, but it was something a year and a half later, people still talk about. So I want what we talk about on Sundays, I want it to stick. I want people to remember it. And, you know, most sermons you hear, you forget within a couple of days. Yeah. Well, do you have any impactful preachers or non-preacher communicators in your life that you'd like to share? Maybe some of those comedians that you look to as inspirations? Yeah, I'll start there. Um, the thing about stand-up comedians is they stand up and do a 45-minute you know, bit or sometimes an hour or more with no notes, but you know there were notes at some time, at some point, right? They're not just right. going off the cuff. They look like they are. And that's what I look for, then, is, is anytime I can find a, a compelling communicator who is uh, authentic and making eye contact and, you know, with no notes or very few notes, but I know, I can tell they've given it enough time and work and thought to think through every single word they're going to say. And they went to the trouble of even memorizing the manuscript that they once wrote. Uh, that, to me, just at, from the standpoint of the craft of public speaking, uh, that is something I deeply appreciate. So people ask if I'm a manuscript preacher, and the answer is yes. I always write a manuscript, but I don't bring it to the stage with me. Um, by Sunday morning, I've got 90% of it memorized, and I've got a, I've got a uh, outline or some help, help notes inside my Bible. But um, 
you know, that's not because I have a photographic memory or anything. I just, I prioritize it. So I spend, I have to say no to some other things. I make less hospital visits because I'm obsessing over this manuscript and memorizing it. Mm. So anyway, the you know, Louis C.K. genius in terms of uh, communication, timing, and, and holding an audience. Uh, George Carlin before him, um, also someone I look up to more, uh, religious circles, I guess. Adam Hamilton is probably someone who shaped me early on, not as much anymore, but in my formative time as a preacher, what Adam taught me was to preach well, you have to work at it. Mm. And he talked about spending 20 hours a week on a sermon. And that was, I had never heard anything like that before. You know, I, I had heard that pastors basically were holding the office of pastor and you were there for people when they needed you and you administered the sacraments and, you know, ordered the church and things like that. And you got your sermon done whenever you could in the gaps. Uh, and I think what he taught me was if we're really going to be uh, meaningful or relevant in, in the 21st century, pastors have to have to plot out time to prepare good sermons and uh, and fit the rest of the stuff around that. You know, there's uh, early early Rob Bell and some of his communication skills were very formative for me. I went to some liberal liberal schools, and so I was I had mostly liberal uh, influences. Sure. Um, in my early years, uh, Brueggemann, um, was incredibly, uh, influential for me, uh, Willimon and Harawas recent, more recently in the last five years, I've, I've been exposed to some preachers that I may not agree with on everything theologically, but their communication skills and their ability to make the gospel real was, uh, just incredible. And so, uh, people beat me up for this, but I, I still listen regularly to Mark Driscoll's sermons uh, just uh, because of how poignant and pointed he could make Jesus uh, sound and appear for young men in his congregation. Hmm. And, you know, there's several, several people in that world of Christianity that I listen to regularly. And I just would say to any preachers, you know, you can... You can learn from people you disagree with. You can learn the craft of preaching and persuasion from people that you don't hold everything in common with. You can take your theology and put it into a you know Mark Driscoll-esque approach to sermon. Um, and so he helped me really learn to preach to men. And uh, I, I value that. Andy Stanley is someone who I've watched uh, develop over time, and I find him to be a genius in terms of the craft of communication. It, Barbara Brown Taylor was an influence on me uh, early on, and Lamott has always been one who in, influences me in terms of how to be how to be humorous and profound and serious at the same time. Yeah. I could go on and on. Sure. Well, are there any books or other resources you might recommend that our audience check out? For me, anyone who is making the gospel real for people uh, through the spoken word or communication to non-religious people and especially young people. And so within Methodism, that can be 
that can be hard to find sometimes, uh, frankly, for me. But uh, I, I still listen to Hamilton sometimes. Craig Groeschel, not a Methodist uh, anymore, but I listen to his sermons um, somewhat regularly. Uh, I think people should be listening to voices like Nadia Boltz-Weber and uh, Jen Hatmaker. I think people should be listening to young, edgy voices like Justin Morgan, Matt Miofsky, Jessica Legrone. I think I have been going back some ways. I've been influenced uh, by African-American voices. Emmanuel Cleaver, who is now in Congress, was a preacher in Kansas City when I was uh, cutting my teeth, and I used to go and hear him regularly. But anyone who can demonstrate to me that they have spent hours in preparation and intentional uh, sermon development, not just hours in, in prayer, that's important. But if, if I can tell they've worked on the craft, to me, that's exciting. And so, uh, so I listen to people that I can sense that from. I still listen to Andy Stanley every week. And yeah. people, people think I'm crazy. But if, <laughs> if you used to listen to Andy Stanley 10 years ago and you stopped for some reason, you should check him out again because uh, it's interesting how times change and, and he has continued to adapt. But uh, his, I'll tell you, man, Stanley's work with the election was brilliant. And his uh, You're Scaring the Children bit, uh, I don't know if you saw that, Dan. It was incredible uh, in terms of communicating uh, to his congregation gospel truth in an anxious time and telling people to, you know, chill out and trust God. Yeah. And, uh, and just brilliant stuff. So he's edgier than people give him credit for, in my opinion. Good stuff is, is out there. You, you kind of have to hunt for it. And once you find someone that speaks to you or can help you be better, you bookmark them and you, you know, instead of, you know, watching Netflix uh, on the treadmill, you turn on a sermon and, and just absorb it. Yeah, well, for folks who want to follow your work, maybe watch some of your sermons or reach out and say hi, or if they have any questions, what might be the best way for folks to, to follow you online? Yeah, the, the church, you can follow at thestory.church. That's our website, thestory.church. And uh, Twitter, I'm at Eric the Story. I don't tweet a whole lot. Uh, Instagram is at Pastor Eric Huffman. And uh, Facebook is... I think my handle there is also Pastor Eric Huffman, but you can just search Eric Huffman and uh, find me. I'm not the Eric Huffman in uh, the Book of Mormon. I'm the, <laughs> other, I'm the other Eric Huffman. So I don't get confused. I know uh, we're a lot alike. So Awesome. Well, Eric, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Definitely, brother. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play Music, or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they're live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. 
Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.